are continuing on in our series, This Is Our God. Who is this God that we serve? We know who he is based on what he has revealed to us about himself in scripture. Have you ever thought that God was mad at you about something? Ever had that thought or that feeling? Many people have thought of God as a vengeful deity. For a lot of people, this is the issue that creates a big obstacle in their faith. The famous skeptic Bertrand Russell, in his book, Why Am I I Not a Christian, said the primary reason he did not believe in Jesus was because Jesus so clearly believed in the wrath or anger of God. Russell called Christ's belief in the wrath of God the one profound defect in his character, which is interesting. C.S. Lewis, the uh, great author, said, There's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if I lay it in my power, which would be the anger of God. And so what we're going to see in today's passage is that our God is unlike God. Us. As we've looked at these different attributes of God through this series, as Bill looked at last week, the loyal love of God, God also gives us one here which is slow to anger. Let's read this, uh, which has been our foundation passage throughout the series, Exodus chapter 34. If you remember, this is when God is, or when Moses is on the mountaintop there with God as he's about to give him the Ten Commandments. God reveals this about himself. He said, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And these are the attributes of God that he tells us for the first time in scripture about himself. Who is this God that we serve? So we have to kind of look at what, what is slow to anger? You could almost look at it as we have a God who is patient, but we have to kind of pull back. What is the anger or wrath of God that's talked about? And we have several points here that we're going to kind of pull that back and look at this kind of controversial attribute of God. We First of all, we see that God's anger does exist. It's very clear in this text. The Bible speaks of God's anger or wrath more than 600 times throughout the Bible. Psalm 711 says that God is angry with the wicked every day. And I know that some of you think, well, that's just an Old Testament thing. It gets nicer in the New Testament. He was kind of cranking the Old Testament, but then he change, has a change of heart, and he becomes God 2.0, Jesus, the meek and mild. But that's not true at all. God's anger and wrath is re, a repeated theme with Jesus also in the New Testament. In fact, it is one of his most frequent themes as you look in the Gospels. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Not only does Jesus talk about it, we see him demonstrate it as well. Toward the end of his life, Jesus goes into the temple and he chases out the workers that were basically the crooks in the temple out with a whip. You know, I grew up 
in church with a flannel graph board. If you are my age or older, you'll remember that. The old flannel graph board before we had technology. And you had this meek and mild Jesus. And then we'd see him holding the kids or, or, or petting the lambs. And we see this kind of like loving Jesus on the flannel graph board. If you don't know what a flannel graph board is, you've got to Google it. That way you'll understand what a flannel graph character is. It's uh, something from days gone by. But Jesus' testimony to the wrath of God, it was central to his message and his ministry. For that matter, it wasn't talk about God's love that got him killed. It was his insistence on God's anger toward hypocrisy and injustice is what got Jesus killed. So we see that God's wrath does exist. We also see, number two, God's anger is an expression of his goodness. His goodness would not be complete without it. God's anger grows out of his love. His love for goodness and purity and holiness in us. As a dad, I have three kids. I love my kids. I will not tolerate things in my children that I know will harm them. I want to drive those characteristics out of them. Dishonesty, cruelty, laziness. I get angry as a dad when I see those attributes in my children. God is angry at sin. Why? Because he loves his creation, which is us, and sin destroys his creation. In Genesis 1, God brought order out of chaos. The longer we live on this earth, we see order descending back into chaos. That's evidenced every day on the news. That's what happens when we sin, and because we have a God of love, he will not sit by and just wait and watch it happen. God desires to bring us to a world free of sin and injustice and exploitation and racism and greed. He hates all of those things. He wants to bring us to heaven, and heaven can only be heaven if there is no sin there. So think about how heaven is described. It's described as a place of no pain no crying. Heaven can only be heaven if there is no sin. So God's anger towards sin is born out of his love for purity in his creation. Number three, we see God's anger often consists in letting us experience the consequences of the choices we make. You see this in the passage where God says, the passage we just read, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. People sometimes read this passage and they think, well, that doesn't sound fair. It sounds like God is holding the the kids accountable for what the parents did. That's not right. That's not fair. But scripture... Scripture expressly denies that in multiple places like Ezekiel 18.20 where it says the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father. The wickedness of the wicked shall not be upon himself. So what does this passage here in Exodus mean? It means that the parent's sin have consequences that will affect their children. Let me illustrate it this way. I'm a banker. You guys know I work a job as a banker. I've worked for a large bank now for 14 years. If I were to steal money from my bank and get thrown into jail, would that have an impact on my children? 
absolutely. The children would feel the consequence of my sin. If you cheat on your wife and leave her for someone else, will your kids suffer for it? Absolutely. If I cook meth in my house, will my kids not only be affected emotionally and physically? Absolutely. If I choose the beach, Disney, or sports on Sundays instead of worshiping God with our church family, will my kids be affected spiritually? Absolutely. God's judgment, you see, often consists of simply allowing us to experience the painful consequences of our choices. In fact, the way Jesus describes hell, it shows it to be the fruition of our sin. We might miss it because the Jewish metaphors he uses sometimes can be unfamiliar to us in our English language, where he says the worm that does not die is an image of a conscious continually being eaten away by guilt and regret. Thinking back to all of the opportunities that you had in your life to follow Christ and ask him to be your Lord and Savior, and yet you rejected him. Outer darkness is another way that Jesus refers to it, a total absence of, of God and all of his goodness. There will be no presence of God in hell. We do not realize on this earth the extent of God's restraining grace on sin, the devil, and his demons. God's restraining grace is something that is not in hell. It is outer darkness as he describes it. He also describes it as the gnashing of teeth, this Jewish image that meant self-condemnation and self-loathing. And we have another image of fire, the agony of God's displeasure. Hell is simply the, the full fruition of telling God to get out of your life and allowing sin to grow in you unchecked. You see, sin is like a cancer that is continually growing. If your pettiness or jealousy or foul moods or dishonesty or tendencies to abuse others keeps growing in you for eternity, what would that be like? It would be awful. Awful. That means God's mercy now is letting you taste some of the painful consequences of your sin in this life to help you wake up and see your need for a Savior who is Jesus. We think when a husband or wife is caught in the middle of, a, of an affair, that that revealing of that sin is God's judgment. And I would argue just the opposite. I would argue that the revealing of that sin is actually God's mercy. You see, God is exposing the sin so repentance and restoration can occur in this life. When your heart is not right, the absolute worst thing that God can do for you is give you what you want. Because you see, our sin and our sinful human beings, we will choose sin every single time. Where is he waking you up this morning in the destruction, destructive consequences of your choices? Where is it in our life that we need to look at and say, this is eating me up from the inside out. Is it a relationship? Is it something that you are involved in that nobody knows about? I pray that God will expose that sin as an act of mercy in your life. Number four, God chose to let his love 
overcome his anger. There is a contrast set up in God's presentation of his name. It says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see, this verse in Hebrew is a poem with a parallel structure where the last phrase compares to the first. So on the one end, you have God's justice, which is to the fourth generation. On the other hand, you have God's mercy, which is to thousands of generations. The word really here should be, you know, should be in here with the translation. God's mercy is ex exponentially greater than his wrath. Or go back to the phrase that we're looking at today, slow to anger. He is slow to anger. The Aramaic translation of the Old Testament, which would have been what Jesus would have read. Remember, you know, Jesus in that time they spoke Aramaic translates it this way, the one who makes anger distant and brings compassion near. That is slow to anger. God felt two rightful emotions toward us when he looks at us. Anger and compassion. He sovereignly and inexplicably chose to bring one close and push another far away. God was fully justified when he felt wrath for our sin. He would have been fully justified to push us out forever. Why? Because our sin against a holy God is a damnable punishment for eternity. God owes us nothing. He owes us nothing. But he chose to push away that wrath and bring compassion here. He is slow to anger. It was his free choice, and it is one of the greatest mysteries of all of the universe. Peter says that even the angels are com completely confused by this. They look at it and say, this just does not add up. One of the most remarkable passages of scripture, maybe in the whole Bible, is Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were good, holy people. Not while we were in a good relationship with God. While we were sinners. Another passage says, while we were enemies with God. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. When my kids lie to me, my loving anger at their sin makes me want to purify them of it. I do not like that. If you're a parent, you probably feel the same way. But here's where that breaks down. Even when my kids lie, they're still my kids. Still love them. This passage in Romans says that our sin and our rebellion, it made us enemies with God. As much as your children may drive you nuts someday. I don't think any of you view them as your enemy. Your enemy of which you want to destroy. God choosing to push anger away and bring compassion near 
was not like me wanting to see one of my kids be free of dishonesty. A better illustration that I could bring it to today, and this even still does not even come close to what God did for us, but it would be like a Jewish family who had just lost a loved one due to the events of this past week, choosing to love and adopt into their family a Hamas member who killed one of their family members. That would be the best way I could illustrate that today. You say, Pastor, we are not that bad. What about all of our good works? Let me illustrate it this way. When you think about our good works, of all of the terrible things that have happened over the last, over the last seven or eight days, let's say two Hamas soldiers are sitting in a camp, one has nothing to eat and the other shares his lunch. That's genuinely a good act, but it's hard for us to call that good because of the evil acts that they have committed. Our whole lives, you see, because of our sin nature, is spent in rebellion against the holy God, living for our glory instead of his, living as our only authority and rejecting his. Our rebellion killed Jesus, and that shrouds even our good deeds in a cloak of evil. So there is no greater wonder in the universe, no greater wonder than the fact that God would love you and me because he had no reason to. Do we should simply stand amazed every week that Jesus, as the hymn writer would say, the Nazarene, and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. How marvelous, how marvelous is our Savior's love for me. Number five, we can escape God's anger only through Christ. It says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. How can God forgive sin and at the same time, not allow the guilty to go unpunished. If he will by no means clear the guilty, then whom is he forgiving? The resolution to this contradiction that we find in Scripture is through one person, and that is Christ. Christ would stand as the substitute. Because of that, he now stands as our advocate. I used to think you can't hold him guilty. God can't require two punishments for the same sin. A lot of times we want to minimize God's wrath because that makes us feel safe, but we can't. God has planted it in our conscience. God does not allow the guilty to go unpunished. We try to deny the reality of God's judgment. We can't even convince our own hearts of that. Coming to Jesus takes that subconscious, unsettled feeling of judgment and makes it conscious. We embrace that we are condemned. But then Jesus tells us to rest because he took the punishment of our sin upon himself. So when he says, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, whom by no means will clear the guilty, Jesus is the resolution to that contradiction. The voice of condemnation whispers, you are finished. 
And there are many days that I get to the end of the day and I feel that voice of how I have failed Christ. And I have to remind myself of what Jesus said on the cross that it is finished. He died for our sin. So we see the only way to escape God's anger is through Christ. Number six, God's anger comes slowly but surely. If you were in our connection group this past Thursday, I hope you'll be here, I mean, past Tuesday, I hope you'll be here this next Tuesday. We learned that in Hebrew, the phrase slow to anger literally means in Hebrew, long of nostrils. Yeah, it's kind of funny, isn't it? How does that mean slow to anger? Shows you the Hebrew language is a very colorful language. You know, we have lots of idioms in the English language. This is, I'm sure, one that they had in Hebrew. And so what happens when you get angry? Your nostrils begin to flare, don't they? They begin to, you know, get larger and your, your nose maybe gets red. But if you're slow to anger, you close your mouth and you begin to breathe through your nose slowly. The phrase means this, you can make God mad, but you really have to work at it. He's slow to anger. He's slow to anger because he wants you to repent. He wants you to wake up to the reality of your sin and your need for a Savior. So his anger is slow to allow you to the time to see that Reality. The Apostle Peter says that throughout human history, mankind has mistaken God's slowness to anger to his absence. You see, Noah, nearly 100 years took place between the time that God announced the flood would come and then the flood actually came. See, God's anger toward the sin of the people of Noah's day, he gave them 100 years of Noah preaching Turn from your sin and follow the one true God. Most of the people in those days interpreted that long space as God failing to act. And Peter said that long space was God giving his people a chance to repent. Even now, Peter says, people assume the delay of the coming of Christ and judgment means that he is not coming back, but he is. Don't use what God intends to be space or slowness to repent to his absence. The delay in Christ coming back, and you guys have heard me say this again, this may be the last time we meet. Christ could return this week. Christ died 2,000 years ago on a cross, and his delay in his coming back a second time is his slowness to anger, giving you an opportunity to repent and follow Christ. Even now, you may see that God is doing things to wake you up. You see, when God sent the plagues upon Egypt in Exodus, each one got worse. The water turns to blood. The animals die. They got disease. Trying to wake them up. Can you not see that in our world? The new cycle seems to be greater and greater with each passing month and year. Disease, war, the world falling apart. And God is saying, wake up. 
I am slow to anger. I'm giving you a chance to repent. So I ask you, is God revealing this to you in your life? Is your life, you look around and you say, man, things have gotten so hard. And God is pulling me to a place in my life where I have tried everything. I've tried climbing the corporate ladder. I've looked for love. I've looked for relationship. I've poured my life maybe into seeing my kids grow up and nothing is bringing that fulfillment that I thought that it would. And I need something else. It's God bringing you and drawing you to himself. He is slow to anger. He does not want you to perish. He wants, no one wants you to escape God's wrath more than God. You see, you were not designed for wrath. Hell was not made for you. It was made for Satan and his demons. But you have to choose to receive the free gift of salvation offered through Jesus Christ. One of the most unusual Supreme Court cases from 1833 was the United States versus Wilson. George Wilson, who had pled guilty for grand theft and assault. In June of 1830, President Andrew Jackson issued a pardon to Wilson, but Wilson, for reasons undisclosed and unknown, he refused that pardon. The Supreme Court ruled a pardon must be received to be valid. It is an act of grace that cannot be forced. If unreceived, it is not valid. Very unusual Supreme Court case. But that applies to us today. You see, some of you will die, reject Christ in this life, and wake up to the reality of hell in the next. No one wants you to escape God's wrath more than God. You see, the gospel is only good news for those who accept it. Some of you will spend eternity in hell for sins, for your sins that were paid for by Christ. Such a sad state. And you will think back to this message, to the many messages you've heard me speak, and realize that this Bible is true. That our God provided a way of salvation, a way of grace in your life. Please hear my words and allow this to be your day of salvation. If you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would love to have a conversation with you to share you more, with you more about the wonderful joy of knowing Christ. Let's pray.